The gospel lesson today comes from the gospel according to John, chapter 3, verses 1 through 17, and you can find it on page 1055 of the Pew Bible. And this, I think, is what we might call a super passage. And I say that because there are a number of very significant verses or significant teachings that we find in this passage to the extent where we might read it and think, I had no idea all of that was in this one passage. It has, of course, uh, you can tell by the math of it, John 3.16 in it. It also has Jesus' teaching on how to be born again, which turns out to be about baptism. But perhaps the best part uh, is a less familiar section in between them, and that's what we'll look at this morning. Please stand again as you are able for the gospel. From John 3, beginning at verse 1, we read in Jesus' name. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know, and bear witness to what we have seen. But you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Father, these are your words. Sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. Amen. You may be seated. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to think about something, and if you can, paint a mental picture of it. What does love look like? That's what I want you to think about. Picture it in your mind. Maybe search for an image in the catalog of pictures in your mind that, that really encapsulates love. Now, what does it look like? If you watch a lot of Hallmark movies, it might be a cute girl in a fuzzy winter coat and a handsome guy in a flannel shirt and snowflakes the size of cotton balls falling from the sky. I don't have anything against Hallmark movies, but that's not quite the image we're looking for here. 
Or your image might be a mother tenderly holding a newborn child. Now that's certainly in the right direction. But since you're sitting in church, and there's a big cross straight in front of you, you might have guessed this is going somewhere else. Someone once said, love is beautiful. I actually have no idea who said that. I'm just assuming somebody has probably many people. And it's true. Love is beautiful. But that does not mean it's cute or pretty or attractive in any sense of the word. Love might be the ugliest thing you have ever beheld. It might be something from which we shield our eyes. At our house, I just finished reading The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe to, uh, to our two older children. And I'll admit, I might spoil something here. And so if you haven't read the books yet, which you absolutely should, uh, you can feel free to plug your ears and count to 20. So there's this scene where Susan and Lucy, they follow Aslan at night from a distance as he walks to the stone table alone to let the white witch kill him. He did this in exchange for their brother Edmund, and the two girls, they watch the whole thing in horror and sadness. But when the witch raises her knife to slay this great lion, they can't watch. They look away. It is the greatest display of love they would ever see, but they can't look at it. It is too ugly. It's the most beautiful thing they've ever witnessed, and it's the ugliest. The same thing is true in our world. The most beautiful thing ever is also the ugliest. In the middle section of this super passage, Jesus says to Nicodemus, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man also be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And then that most familiar verse follows, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The part about Moses lifting up the serpent in the wilderness paints a picture of what John 3.16 is talking about. When it says, for God so loved the world, the word so does not mean, like I sometimes, we sometimes hear it, hear it translated, it does not mean God loved the world so much that he gave his only son. Although that would make sense, right? But in the original language, this word means so in the sense of in this manner or in this way. So it's not talking about the extent to which God loved the world, but it's talking about the specific way in which God loved the world. The way in which God loved the world is similar to what Moses did in the wilderness when he lifted up a serpent. Now, what in the world am I talking about? The episode of Moses lifting up a serpent in the wilderness is one of the strangest stories in the Bible. Or at least it was until Jesus spoke these words to Nicodemus in John 3. But for about 1,400 years, I suppose the Jews just looked at this passage and thought, what was that all about? Because for many reasons, it just does not make any sense, not without Jesus' explanation 1,400 years later. So, what happened? 
To find out, we're going to hop in our way back Old Testament machine, and we're going to set it for Numbers chapter 21. And this should drop us off in the land of Edom around the year 1407 BC. Now, Edom is somewhere in between Egypt and Israel, but only if you take the really long way. The Israelites were about 39 years into their 40-year journey in the wilderness. It's almost over, but they're having one of those are-we-there-yet moments. If you have kids or if you have ever been a kid, you know what I'm talking about with an are-we-there-yet moment. They got sick of the food God was giving them, so they grumbled against God and against Moses They complained that they had no food or water. The water thing might have been true, at least for a short time. Occasionally in their wilderness wanderings, they would come to a place with no water, but then God would make water come out of rocks for them. We know that the lack of food thing is completely false because God gave them manna six days a week, and this was right in the middle of that time. Manna was this sweet wafer-like bread that just appeared on the ground every morning. I'd like to have some for breakfast someday. We also know that their claim is not true just from the words that they say. So listen to the funny thing that they say. They said, there's no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. (laughs) Did you catch where they slipped up? They admitted there was food, they just didn't want it anymore. It's kind of like when your mom packs a cooler full of ham sandwiches for a trip, but at some point, you just want something else. You already had one for second breakfast, another one for 11Zs, one for lunch, and you want something else for your afternoon snack. The Israelites, they're just getting tired of eating the same thing every day, and so they grumbled against God. And God sent a plague of snakes to discipline them. The Bible calls them fiery serpents. They they may have been fiery in their appearance in the sense that they looked fiery. Maybe they had red and yellow skin. Who knows? Most likely, though, it, it means or it at least includes that their bite felt fiery because they bit the people and many of the people died. And so the people, in response, they confessed their sin and prayed that God would take the serpents away. And that is a very good response. And God answered their prayer, but not exactly how they asked him to. Instead of taking the serpents away, he gave them a cure. And the cure is really, really weird. God said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Now, this is really weird in at least three ways. First, it's not the typical remedy for snake bite. If you ever get bitten by a snake and your doctor just gives you a statue of a snake to look at, you should find a new doctor and pretty fast. Second, this seems to be a violation of the first commandment, right? Now, the first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. That's the part that we usually memorize, but there's more to it, however. God says, you shall not make for yourself the carved image. You shall not bow down to it. You shall not worship it. But now, God tells Moses to make a carved image, and these people are supposed to look to it for healing. And that seems like a violation of the first commandment. 
It's not a violation simply to make a, a carving or a statue of something, but if you make a carving of something and then you look to it for salvation or for divine healing, you know what that is? That is an act of worship. And so this is really weird that God would command his people to do this. Third, and this is the one that really intensifies the weirdness of it, it's a snake. And what does a snake remind us of? Last Sunday, I, I, I uh, admitted that I don't really like snakes, and I'm even kind of afraid of them. Maybe that makes me seem less manly, but then someone reminded me that Indiana Jones was also afraid of snakes, and so that made me feel better. <laughs> but a lot of people are afraid of snakes. Somebody told me 85%, I think. There's just something disturbing about them. It goes back to the fall into sin, right? Where the devil took the form of a serpent. And then after tempting Adam and Eve to sin, God cursed the serpent, saying that he would slither around on his belly and eat the dust of the earth. And so at that moment, it seems that God changed the nature of, of serpents to make them creepy, both literally and figuratively. And so the snake is the image of the devil. Now, you should never look to an animal statue for salvation. And you should especially not use one that represents the devil. And so this thing about looking to a snake statue for healing is just bizarre. And we would not know what to make of this if Jesus didn't bring it up again in John 3. When Jesus makes this comparison, I think it gets weirder, at least for a moment, but if we hang with him until the end, it's going to make beautiful sense. Like that snake on a pole, Jesus would also be set on a pole and lifted up. This is a reference to the cross, where Jesus was literally lifted up on a pole, and everyone who looks to him on the cross and believes in him will have eternal life. But still, why a snake? The reason for the snake is that Jesus became a curse for us. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So the serpent is the image of the curse back from Genesis 3, and that is exactly why Jesus accepts the image of a serpent for himself. He became the curse in order to redeem us from the curse. And so in Numbers 21, when the people looked to the image of a serpent on a pole, that was a prophetic picture of Jesus. The serpent on the pole is an image of the curse, but it was not an image of the devil. A serpent on a pole was the image of God. And I seriously doubt any of them understood the meaning, at least at the time, but the meaning was there. And we can see, we can see that now that it's happened to Jesus. The curse was set on a pole for our salvation. Jesus accepts the curse for our sake. That means that he accepts your sin as his own. And he accepts the condemnation that that sin deserves. And so we look to a cursed man, filled with sin, dead on a cross, 
for our salvation. That is what Jesus became for us. And so this is what John 3.16 is talking about when it says, For in this manner God loved the world. God gave his son to bear our sin and become a curse for us so that everyone who looks to him in faith will not perish but have eternal life. God became ugly for you. You and I, we're just like those Israelites, snake-bitten because of our sin, and we are dying. But God loved us by providing a serpent in our place so that we might look to him in faith and live. This is what love looks like. This is God's perfect love. Snakes are ugly creatures. They smell bad, too. It's like the stench of death is always on them. But this is the picture of God's love. It's not pretty, cute, or attractive in any sense of the word. It's as ugly as sin, literally. The actual cross on which Jesus died is much uglier than a snake on a pole. Imagine if someone walked in here right now with a snake nailed to a pole, And not just the statue of a snake, but what if someone took a real snake and nailed it to a stick and waved it in front of your face? Would you look at it? That would be really ugly. But that is not nearly as ugly as the actual sight of the cross. There we have Jesus with his back ripped open, a crown of thorns on his head. He's bleeding from at least six different places. It's going to be seven or more after he dies. He's in anguish. He's dying. People are mocking him. This is the sort of thing from which we hide our eyes. But our eyes can't even see the ugliest part of it. In that hideous flesh, God laid the sin of the entire world. And that, of course, means yours. That's why the exterior is so ugly. It's a little glimpse of the ugliness inside. Jesus became a curse inside and out. It is so unbelievably ugly and at the same time, beautiful. Because this is love. He was ugly for you. Behold, love. Do not shield your eyes from Jesus. He invites us to imagine the sight of the cross. Picture it in your mind. Take it all in. Smell the blood. Feel the cool, dense humidity of darkness in the middle of the day. Hear him cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then finally, into your hands I commit my spirit. And feel the fading warmth of his final breath and see his chest rise not again. Behold, love, ugly and beautiful, for this is your salvation. Amen. And may the peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.